electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Once again, we are just days away from a possible government shutdown. And if we don't get a deal by this Friday, that could put Thanksgiving travel in the crosshairs. Oh, boy. But we'll look at why some analysts are a little more positive a deal will happen this time around and what that would mean for markets, the economy, and also those wars overseas. Plus, a lot has happened since China's Xi was last in the U.S., a pandemic, a war in Europe, and a lot more trade and tech restrictions between our two countries. But the tone from China seems to be shifting towards the U.S. What you need to know and what other stocks could benefit, aside from Boeing. And a new real-time gauge of how the consumer is really doing. Steve Leisman calls it the data Wall Street wants to get his hands on, and he brings it to us straight ahead in just a couple of minutes. But first, let's get the lowdown on this shutdown situation. Emily Wilkins is on Capitol Hill with the very latest. Emily? Hey, Kelly. Well, House Republicans released their proposal this weekend to avoid a government shutdown. So the plan is temporary funding, but it splits the government funding bills into two groups. So lawmakers would have until January 19th to work on the first one and then until February 2nd to negotiate on the other. House Speaker Mike Johnson decided to leave out conservative priorities, things like spending cuts or border security measures. Now, doing so could potentially win him some Democratic support, but it has already lost him the support of about half a dozen Republicans, including Congressman Bob Good. He tweeted today that he is opposed to the stopgap that has been proposed because it contains no spending reductions, no border security, and no policy wins for the American people. Good went on to say that he's still committed to working with Speaker Johnson and his House colleagues to chart a better path forward. But at this point, the bill that was released, time is quickly running out. Uh, Republicans are planning a vote on that in the House on Tuesday. Democrats have also come out with some concerns against the Republicans' bill, with White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre calling it, quote, a recipe for more Republican chaos and more shutdowns. House Republicans are hoping to get a vote this week still, although they'll need to clear several procedural hurdles to do so. And the Senate is also working on their own stopgap measure. We could see details early on that as soon as today. Kelly? Uh, Emily, I'm about to ask our next guest about this, but was there any reaction to the Moody's move on Friday where they downgraded the credit to negative? I think a lot of lawmakers were keeping their eye on that. I mean, certainly they are very much aware for these rating changes and for a credit agency. But I think in terms of actual impact on the process, it's just not clear that this is going to be doing much. You know, a lot of lawmakers, they're looking to partisan tensions. They're looking to their constituents. Um, and a lot of them have really dug in here on the issues that they're going to be pushing forward to on the next week. I'm also reading Libby Cantrell's note this afternoon uh, uh, from over at PIMCO. She says she thinks the odds of a shutdown have declined somewhat as uh, the speaker has rolled out this kind of two-tiered CR. Is that a mood that you're generally sensing over there? 
Well, the one thing I think that maybe make people more optimistic about avoiding a shutdown is the fact that this spending bill doesn't include any of those conservative priorities. It certainly seems like it's an olive branch from Mike Johnson to Democrats saying, hey, uh, we're trying this two-tier approach. I mean, that was certainly a conservative idea uh, from the rightmost flank of Republicans. But at the same point, it seems like he's trying to meet halfway. He's not putting anything that Democrats would be openly opposed to. And you saw a Democrat, Chris Murphy, say over the weekend that, you know, he's not on board with the idea, but it's something that he is game to look at. So we'll have to see how that plays out over the next week. Although, of course, there are a number of Democrats who have said that the plan's already dead on arrival. Emily, finally, on this uh, issue of how this proposal contains no funding for Israel, remind me, that separate package, that $100 billion, was, did they ever move forward on that with funding for Israel, Ukraine, and, and, and others? Or if there's no funding for Israel in this package, what does that mean? So they haven't moved ahead on it yet, but there is still work being done. Remember that it's the Israel funding that has a lot of support. It's Ukraine that you see a number of Republicans have some concerns about. And so the thought is, is to sort of give Republicans something they want, border security, along with that Ukraine funding. And there is a group of senators who is trying to find a bipartisan solution when it comes to the border, when it comes to immigration, and then pair that with Ukraine funding and Israel funding. Certainly, I think all of those things are still on the table, but we've got five days left before a shutdown. And I think the thought is that they just really need to focus on getting that done first. All right, Emily Wilkins, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Let's turn to Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Maya, it's good to have you here. And I was also going to start off by asking you about that Moody's move on Friday. Right. Well, what we heard out of Moody's was nothing that anybody who's watching the situation in this country doesn't know, which is one, we are borrowing too much. And two, our, our politicians are not functioning as we would want to actually solve problems. So it was a vote of no confidence in the U.S. fiscal fiscal policy, and that makes absolute sense, right? We have so many things wrong. We're close to record debt levels. Our interest payments after interest rates have gone up are starting to really go up quickly. We have trust funds that are going to become insolvent. But the real problem is that Congress is not able to agree on any of the hard measures to actually address this. So it's a warning, and we've heard it from the other rating agencies, that there is no reason to look at fiscal policy and say we're anywhere close to the right course. And the concern is, what are our politicians going to do to be able to change course? And that's still a huge question. Yeah. That goes beyond what's going on in Congress right now. That's sort of the bigger picture for the coming years. A lot of people seem to assume that if the, you know, if the process is cleaner, in other words, if we don't have shutdowns, if we don't fight about the debt ceiling, that would maybe take care of some of the rating agency uh, responses here. But I'm not so sure that would be the case. You know, if we just agree to continued CRs and the uh, kind of budget position remains what it is, could you see Moody's and the others continuing to downgrade uh, U.S. credit even with those deals in place? Unfortunately, yes. So obviously, it would be preferable for us to stop governing by crisis, which is how it works right now. They basically can't get anything until, done until the deadline is passed. But even then, what I think we have is a position where the parties are so entrenched and so busy fighting each other, they're not willing to make hard choices, think about the long-term fiscal situation, compromise, do any of the things that are really required to deal with the big structural problems facing the U.S. in terms of fiscal policy, which are our growing entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare, right. and the fact that we don't have enough revenues to cover those. Do you see anybody willing to talk about those tough issues in the near future? I really don't even if they stop uh, flirting with shutdowns and defaults, which obviously are no way to govern. 
Is there any way in which the bad deficit situation we're in now is still somehow a relic of the pandemic? Because when you look through the line items and try to figure out how we got here, for instance, the entitlement problems, well, we had an 8% COLA. We had a huge COLA for Medicare. Those are going away as inflation normalizes. A lot of other weird spending, the FDIC bailouts, you know, a lot of these kind of bizarre one-offs that have pushed, pushed us into a structurally bad place. Can that somehow resolve itself so that the problem looks a little better in a couple of years' time or no? Yeah, it's a great question. And it also goes to the point that borrowing for COVID was the absolute right thing to do. It's the fact that we've been borrowing on the buildup to COVID when the economy was strong. And since then, since the economy has been strong, we're still borrowing. But the answer to your question is no. There were a number of one-off things that affected the deficit this year. So that it ended up being $2 trillion and doubled from where it was last year. But even as those one-offs pull back, and I will say they're probably likely to be more because, as you just pointed out, we're going to see a lot more in emergency spending and supplementals in the coming months and probably years. But the big structural problems are the growing, the aging of the population, growing health care costs, and now interest payments, which are the fastest growing part of the budget. Those are not going to shift away. And so we are going to see sort of the course we're on to borrow almost $20 trillion over the next decade. That's not going to fix itself for sure. It's not that there are any things that we saw in the past couple of years, but we won't see going forward. Those things are only going to get worse. Um, Maya, we'll leave it there. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Maya McGinnis. want to also turn to Krishna Guha. He's vice chair and head of global policy and central bank strategy at Evercore ISI. Krishna, I appreciate you joining us here on the newsline. And I just wanted to ask you about a risk that Michael Hartnett at Bank of America highlighted recently, which is, he said, you know, the worst credit event of all would be one, it would be a U.S. recession in which interest rates rise. And I'm curious if you see that as a possibility in, for the next 6, 12, 18 months time. So I think it's pretty unlikely on this kind of timeline that you're talking about. You know, we're still, I think, in an environment in which a sufficiently serious recession would be disinflationary, would result in inflation coming down and therefore uh, tend to be associated with bond yields coming down, too. But the mere fact that people are having to ask this question right now is telling you just how much has changed in the last few years. Right. And I guess, the you know, it would be the biggest nightmare because, well, here's the thing. In a recession, that typically means, like you said, lower bond yields. The only problem this time around is it also hurts revenues. So if a, if a recession means there's not, you know, the, the situation gets worse, I'm trying to figure out how people would respond to that in terms of the 10-year yield. Well, I certainly think there's also the possibility of a milder version of what you described, where yields come down uh, in a recession, but not down as much as we've gotten used to in the past. And that would be difficult for investors in terms of portfolio performance. It would also be uh, difficult for policymakers because you know, one of the assists you get when you're trying to pull an economy out of a recession is the bond market taking yields down a lot. And if yields do come down, but they just don't come down as much as they have in the past, that itself would create problems. One sort of, I guess, the final, the big picture question here, Krishna, is what do you think is the next move in bond yields and how that will affect everything from stocks to the economy and, and the impact, you know, that the, the fiscal situation has on that? Where do you think we're going next? So I think it's notable, very obviously, that yields backed off 5% on a 10-year. I'm not a believer in the idea that the U.S. yields are going to go durably you know, back above 5%, 55 whatever some folks are looking at. 
I do think a few years from now, yields are more likely to be a bit lower than they are today. But I worry that this yield drama is not over yet. Yields have been very volatile in recent weeks. We've seen a bad auction last week result in a bump in yields. Uh, I think these, these dynamics around debt issuance, around you know, the, the increasing resistance, price resistance from investors, I worry that this isn't played out and we could yet see uh, another spike up in yields uh, before we're durably at the far side of this. Yeah, fair enough. Krishna, thank you so much today. We appreciate being able to check in with you. Thank you for your time. Anytime. Evercore ISI. Government shutdown risk aside, my next guest says in the near term, macro fundamentals will support the markets from here. Let's bring in Dan Suzuki. He's deputy CIO at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, it's good to see you. Welcome. Great to see you, Kelly, always. And I should have emphasized that Maya McGinnis's position was that she doesn't expect a shutdown this week, maybe more of a January, February issue now if they can get this resolved. What does that mean to you for how markets perform uh, into year end? You know, Kelly, I, I don't think it really makes a huge difference. Uh, obviously, you know, if you, it has a big impact on sentiment and it has a very near-term impact on sort of the economy. But as we've seen time and time again, you know, you you give you you take what you take away, you get you get back, you know, as soon as the resolution hits. So I think it's really more of a timing shift. Which, if you're thinking about equity investors and profits and discounting future uh, results, it really doesn't make a huge difference. But it does shift the timing, you know, potentially into next year. Uh, so I think it, you know, if you get a resolution in the near term, uh, I think you know there's no reason that the markets can't continue to rally and focus on the actual fundamentals of improving profits, you know, slightly improving liquidity and huge opportunities within the market. And tell me about that. I need to be convinced today at a time when I'm still looking through all the unemployment rate metrics and, and different kinds of uh, possible recession triggers that are out there, how you guys can look at the fundamentals and feel really good about it. Well, I think first thing to point out, Kelly, is I'm sure you're aware, is that there's already a big, a huge divergence between you know the econ- what's happening with the economy and what's happening with corporate profits. You know, the the economy has been chugging along uh, like you know everything's healthy, whereas corporate profits have been in a corporate profits recession. I mean, third quarter is going to be the first quarter of positive growth that we've seen in some time, and so to to that extent. Corporate profits have already felt a lot of the pain and things are getting less bad and in that process of well into the recovery. Whereas the economy, which is much more sensitive to the U.S. consumer, is slowly and gradually starting to slow. But I think the ultimate level of balance sheets and incomes are such that it's going to take a while to turn that super tanker around to get the economy to actually fall into recession. So not that it's not going to happen. But it's just not going to happen imminently. So you guys think the profits recovery is underway and should provide strong support for cheap cyclicality. Where in particular do you think would be the most attractive parts of the market now? And then what's kind of your general price target for the S&P? Yeah, Kelly, well, I'll answer the, the second part first. I mean, the best part of not being a sell-side strategist anymore <laughs> is I don't have to come up with S&P target because I think it's a bit meaningless. You know, as a, on the buy side, as an investor, you're really focused on, you know, higher or lower. I think, as, as I said, in the very near term, you know, risk starts to the upside. What's the best way to play that? Well, profits are indeed recovering and liquidity is ample. You know, what are the cheap areas of cyclicality out there? I think uh, energy, uh, and industrials are probably, you know, some of the better ways to play that. They're more late cyclical sectors, late economically cyclical sectors. But I think in barbelling that with some defensive high quality areas like healthcare, you know, also makes some sense where we're given where we are. What, what would it take for you guys to change your tune and say, you know, is it, are you watching things like the labor market data? Would it be 
you know, I think we only have kind of the retail portion of earnings season to work through. What what would be your trigger points for a change in outlook? Yeah, I think the biggest risk to the near term, Kelly, is that of, and everybody's focused on this right now, is that of credit and liquidity. Right now, you're starting to start to you're starting to feel the pain trickle through on the lower end of, of businesses and households. Um, but you know, the more most households and most businesses are actually still quite healthy. I think to see you know a, a dent in that recovery, you really have to see that broaden out and become a bigger problem. I just don't see that happening right now because not a lot of companies and not a lot of households are refinancing at these much higher rates yet. Dan, we will leave it there and we will check it. I'm not going to I am going to say we will check in with your better half later. You guys better be telling <laughs> the same story or else. But, completely you know, different story. Yeah, completely, <laughs> that's right. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, we, we appreciate your time today. Dan Suzuki. Coming up, a high-stakes face-to-face meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping this week. What a successful summit could look like for each country and why more American companies are back to doing business in Beijing. We'll talk about that next. Plus, is it time to say goodbye to monthly government data and hello to real-time stats from corporate America? We'll get the latest spending data from CNBC's new retail monitor ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets fluctuating today, starting with declines, turning those into gains as we move throughout the session. The Dow's up 72 points right now. The exchange is back after this. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Chinese President Xi Jinping meeting with a U.S. president on U.S. soil for the first time in six years this Wednesday. But he's also meeting with tech leaders. It's all part of the APEC summit taking place in San Francisco this week. And it's happening just as it appears China could be warming up towards U.S. business. But my next guest is skeptical. Joining me now is Anya Manuel, direct, executive director of the Aspen Strategy Group. Anya, it's good to have you here today. Skeptical. Tell me. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I think the United States is in a strong position going into this summit. The U.S. economy is growing very quickly, 4.9% last quarter. China says it's growing at about the same pace, but we all think it's slowing down. And these headwinds in China are caused by President Xi's own policies, his tough political crackdown, his making it harder for American and other foreign companies to invest in China. So I think this will be a pretty good summit for the United States. A pretty good summit for the United States. And does the news overnight about China looking to Boeing uh, for, a, for a bunch of new orders, does that kind of fit with that idea? Why would this be better for the U.S. than for China? Oh, well, I'm not sure better one way or another. From the business perspective, um, I believe that we should 
continue to do business with China. There's no reason to cut ourselves off from the Chinese economy other than in areas that touch our national security. So Boeing selling planes into China, fantastic. Our consumer business is doing business there, fantastic. You will see President Xi this week trying to roll out the red carpet for Western businesses. Chinese have been saying, you know, China's open for business. We want you to come here. But in, the fact is, Kelly, that they're making it very, very difficult. As you know, uh, members of due diligence firms in China have been arrested. Uh, the counterespionage is very difficult to comply with. Uh, foreign companies are facing all for- sorts of headwinds there. And I don't see those policies changing, even though the Chinese rhetoric is changing. And so what do you think is the most significant thing that could come out of the meeting this week? And what would tell you that it actually falls shy of expectations? Yeah, on the on the political side, I think success for President Biden and his team would be getting the military to military exchanges back. Uh, the Chinese military, the PLA, has refused to talk to the American military since Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan in 2022. And that's extremely dangerous. Chinese planes are hot dogging in international airspace, flying very close to U.S. planes. Nobody wants an accident to happen that can then spiral out of control. So I think that would be a big uh, victory if we're able to get those exchanges back on track. Indeed. Anya, we'll leave it there. Thank you. It should be a very consequential week one way or the other. We appreciate it today. Anya Manuel joining me from the Aspen Strategy Group. Meantime, a major rare earths discovery may shift the balance in the U.S.-China trade war and potentially help the U.S. close the gap in the mining of these sorts of highly uh, sought-after minerals used by the tech industry. Coal producer Ramico Resources made the surprise find at its Sheridan, Wyoming mine earlier this year and is now in the process of testing what some say could be a $37 billion treasure. Here with more on what the production timeline looks like is Randall Atkins, chairman and CEO of Ramico. Randall, such a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. Great to see you, Kelly. Another Blue Ridge girl. Yeah, that's right. Where are you from? Uh, Kentucky. Uh, okay. But I went to WNL. Oh, you did? I didn't yeah. I didn't even know. Well, it's, it's great to check <laughs> in with you. We'll, we'll talk, uh, talk some strategy. Another so let me just kind of back up for a second with this kind of modern day Beverly Hillbillies tale, albeit that this property was owned by by a Wall Streeter in the first place. How was this discovery made again? Well, it's sort of an, a 10 year overnight uh, sensation. We started uh, really in 2011 with a uh, thermal coal mine. It took us about a year or two to discover that was not going to be the highest and best use of the property. So since that time, we've actually been working with the federal government on developing a whole number of alternative higher value uses for coal. Uh, I, I like to teasingly say fate loves irony. Uh, and that's the sense that coal might be a solution to a number of problems, including obviously the rare earth situation in the United States. So is that a coincidence or is it a characteristic of coal that it might contain these deposits? It's 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 a bit unique. I mean, rare earths are formed, I now understand, in a variety of ways, but it certainly can be found in what they call unconventional minerals, uh, which are like coal, clays, carbonaceous materials. Indeed, in China, a lot of the rare earths are found in, in clays. So... Uh, we are sort of in a lucky spot in uh, northern Wyoming where there was a lot of volcanic activity millions of years ago, which led to the uh, formation of these. Does that mean there are potentially more such discoveries to find? 
I think it's probably logical to conclude that there would be. Uh, I don't think that they're uh, spread evenly across the United States, but I do think in some areas that had a lot of the uh, type of uh, formation characteristics like Wyoming, that that might be the case. So, Randall, tell us, take us back a little bit. As I mentioned, you're a former Wall Street banker. You buy this property in Wyoming. What was your intent with the, it? Was, it was you bought it sight unseen, is my understanding. What attracted you to the property at the time? Well, it was a, uh, a rather large reserve, extremely reasonably priced. And we thought we might make a go of it just as a uh, thermal coal proposition. But, you know, the world changed rather quickly about 10 years ago. And the idea of deploying capital towards a uh, thermal mine became very unattractive. So our approach was basically, what else can we do with this stuff? <laughs> and uh, so that led us to, uh, as I say, a 10-year odyssey of discovering a variety of other alternative uses of coal. And uh, to those who might be more interested in the subject, there was a white paper that I chaired to uh, Secretary of Energy Perry about four years ago from the National Coal Council called Coal in the New Carbon Age. And it outlines a number of these alternative uses. It's fascinating. Including errors. And it's hugely consequential, as we mentioned, you know, this kind of trove could potentially be, what did I read, a hundred some years supply of what we're currently using, although it's going to be incredibly expensive to extract. And China currently has all of the refining. So do you think we'll be able to refine it here? How, how important is that? Or is just having the supplies, even if China refines them, something that could aid our national security? Kelly, that's a great point. And I think the interesting thing is, so these are found in what we call unconventional deposits or unconventional reserves. They're unconventional because most rare earths are found in hard minerals like uranium and mosinite and bosonite. These are things that have to be crunched, crashed, made into powders, and then really refined with very uh, caustic acids, which is why most of these are sent to the Chinese to refine. In unconventional deposits like coal and clays, which are much softer, you can essentially extract and process these, we hope, much more um, benignly. Uh, it's certainly going to be less expensive to get out coal than it would be hard minerals, and it would also be simpler and much more environmentally friendly to refine them uh, by using much milder solvents. And it's, other techniques. It's fascinating. I, as I understand it, the U.S. government has been in, in touch to try to uh, probe just how significant this discovery is. But um, just take me inside the moment when you realize that the property you bought for $2 million could potentially be worth billions. What was that like? Yeah. Well, it, it's very humbling. Uh, no question about it. And I've been around mining long enough to know that uh, Mother Nature can be very tricky. So uh, I think one can take nothing for granted, uh, although I think this is extremely promising. And it's promising, you know, not only, of course, for this company, but it's potentially promising for the United States and, frankly, for the entire coal industry, because this might be something that will uh, kind of awaken the thought that there might be more uh, different uses for coal and, indeed, one of our one-liners is coal is too valuable to burn. Right. Uh, certainly will be the case in this instance. No, it's it's the most incredible marriage of those who both want coal to go away but want new energy to supplant it. And people with investments all up and down, you know, that infrastructure could benefit. Let me ask you this to kind of turn the whole thing on its head, Randall, and not not to be a Grinch about it. Um, you know, but but what would bring this story to a to a kind of to a, a quicker halt than expected? Would it be if you have difficulty extracting the minerals? In what way could it not pan out as it potentially seems like it's going sure. to? 
Great point. As I said, everything about Mother Nature needs to be taken with a certain level of caution. So when you're basically dealing with rare earths, unlike a bulk commodity like coal, uh, you're dealing with essentially microscopic particles. Uh, rare earths are measured in parts per million. So there is a great deal of work that has to go into defining what's the appropriate extraction technique and what's the extract the appropriate separation technique to separate the rare earths from the other material and then of course processing and refining it so we've got a lot of work ahead of us but the good news is uh i, I jokingly use the word the line from hamilton it's it's nice to have washington on your side <laughs> so we've been working with uh, the national labs on this i think we've we're now up to about four or five different national labs that are involved in one form or another on this project so we really have the best and the brightest minds, frankly, in the United States helping us on this. So uh, we, uh, we're we optimistic, but we're always very cautious, and we take these things very meticulously into how we will develop it. Just an incredible story, both heavy and light rare earths. Uh, it could be the first new U.S. rare earths mine since 1952. Uh, you going to share some of that going back to WNL, by the way, if this works out? Oh, well, you know, as I've, as I've used the one-liner, you never know how many old friends and long-lost relatives <laughs> you have until uh, something like this hits the news. <laughs> I can only imagine. Thank you so much for coming on to share your story with us. We appreciate Kelly, it. Great to meet you. We'll all be following along with very great interest. Randall Atkins with Ramico Resources. Still ahead, we've seen a resurgence of organized labor movements this year, resulting in record wage gains for workers across the country. Now new numbers are tracking Americans' views of big business and how how they think corporate America should be responding to inflation. We will bring you those results ahead. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Julia Borston with your CNBC News update. Donald Trump is requesting TV coverage for one of his federal criminal trials. The former president filed a legal motion supporting previous media requests for live coverage of his election interference trial. Trump is facing charges of attempting to defraud the federal government and obstruct Congress by spreading false claims of election fraud. First Lady Jill Biden and the White House Gender Policy Council are set to lead a White House initiative into women's health research. The Biden administration announced the program today with the goal of improving how the federal government funds and approaches research into women's health, an area that remains understudied. The president said he's a believer in the, quote, power of research to help save lives. Traffic is getting worse in Los Angeles. A large fire damaged part of the 10 freeway over the weekend. Closures continue this morning as engineers look for any structural integrity issues. Mayor Karen Bass is asking commuters to review routes using surface streets. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency following the fire. Back over to you. Wow, Julia, thank you. Our Julia Borston. Coming up, the baggage barometer. We'll talk to the CEO of luggage maker Samsonite about what they're seeing in consumer spending and travel behaviors. The exchange is back after this with the Dow hanging on to a 25-point gain. 
Welcome back. Retail stocks are under pressure again today as CNBC has teamed up with the National Retail Federation and data insights company Affinity Solutions to launch a real-time monthly tracker of just how much and where American consumers spend each month. Steve Leisman has more on the methodology. A decade ago, Affinity Solutions, a little-known company, launched it to a little-known business, linking credit card holders with incentives, like when you get five bucks off a cup of coffee for using your plastic. Today, Affinity is the largest consumer purchase data insights company with a massive database. It tracks nearly 9 billion credit card transactions every year from 140 million credit and debit cards from 1,400 card issuers. More than half a trillion in sales is racked up. Now, the power of that data is combining with the National Retail Federation and CNBC to create the CNBC NRF Retail Monitor, a real-time monthly gauge of how much and where consumers spend each month. It's really giving you the purchase truth, and it's allowing you to see what the market is really doing. The existing retail data from the government uses surveys. The CNBC NRF Retail Monitor uses actual transactions. The census data is revised as new data come in. The Retail Monitor isn't revised because it uses actual transactions every month. The important thing about this is that we're going to get timely information about consumers. And as you know, it represents about 70% of all U.S. economic activity. So that's what, how we do the data. Let's see what the actual data say. The CNBC NRF retail monitor powered by Affinity Solutions showing consumers taking a break before the holiday shopping season. Uh, retail sales, let's take a look here. This is our headline number. It's retail sales, X auto and gas, a less volatile number. Down 0.08% after a 0.23% rise in the prior month. Year over year, 2.6 versus 4.9. And here's the month over month for what we call core retail. That takes out auto, gas, and restaurants. Also down 0.03, just a little bit after a gain in the prior month. Looking at the trend over the past year, you can see the CNBC NRF data has been gradually slowing as the year has gone on, actually bucking the trend that the government's been reporting surprising strength among the consumer. We're still up, but not up as much as the government has. Let's take a look at some of the sector detail. Uh, gas stations were negative. Here's the, by the way, this is the, this is the comparison. You can see that the NRF CNBC data, a lot less volatile than the government, even though these are both seasonally adjusted. Now we'll take a look at some of the sectoral detail here, and you'll see that uh, gas station sales negative, Electric appliances, negative. Furniture and home furnishings, negative. Strength in health and personal care. Strength in non-store retailers, sporting goods, and hobby and music. We're going to have to monitor this to see if October weakness is a sign of better or worse holiday sp spending. Maybe, Kelly, a bad Halloween means a Merry Christmas. I don't know. Well, we look at the declines in these stocks. We mentioned earlier VF Corp down 5%, Under Armour, Hanes Brands, Nordstrom, Kohl's. And it's probably safe to say that the data you're highlighting is the kind of data that maybe hedge funds and different kinds of, uh, of practitioners have been reliant on. For oh, it's those more than safe rates. to say we know that for a fact. There you go. We know that they uh, use Affinity. Affinity Solutions is, is one of the number one providers, maybe the number one provider to Wall Street. So thank you for letting us all in on what Now what we have this data know. for us, and it's just the beginning, Kelly. First of all, I want everybody to understand this is part of a trend. We were doing it before the pandemic. In the pandemic, we all went both feet in on high-frequency private sector data because either A, the government couldn't give it to us because they were unable to get it, but B, there were questions we had about the economy we couldn't answer from the existing data. How many people were riding subways? Were your card not present or present? Now we have this data from high-frequency data. For example, 
we're going to have really good internet sales data hmm. because we'll know the car Collect was there right or not. Away. One quick final question. At what point do you think this penetrates the consciousness of the Fed? I think it's already penetrating the consciousness of the Fed. I happen to know that they are, in fact, I think they've acknowledged this publicly, they are getting private sector transactional data hmm. that they're looking at specifically when it comes to issues like emergencies, like hurricanes and stuff. They want to know if there was an issue with declining in a certain area, was it more widespread or was it just that area? For example, when there was a hurricane over Houston, they looked at that. Snowstorms, other things they can look at. We'll be able to look at that too. We're also going to be able to look at, uh, break this data down over time by income, age, and ge geographic group wow. and drill into certain sectors over time. This is a new paradigm, I think, is, and we're hopefully we are we are, are on the cusp of it right now. We need like to call them the Leesman. It's indicate some some fun thing with a little trademark name. But thank you either way, Steve, for bringing My that pleasure. to us. We appreciate it, our Steve Leesman. Let's get even more specific on the consumer now from none other than luggage maker Samsonite. They just reported mixed results overnight, with the Hong Kong listed shares falling nearly five percent. Sales were actually a bit shy in North America also in Asia, and stronger than expected in Europe and Latin America, thanks to strong summer travel demand. Joining us in a first on CNBC interview is Samsonite's CEO, Kyle Gendro. Kyle, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to be I, I was going to say, we're having some outstanding results. I can't wait to talk about it. With you. Indeed. So let me just start not, not to be a downer, but why was North America a little lighter than expected when we thought it was, you know, the summer of revenge travel and all that? I think we're seeing a very strong um, trend for travel generally across the globe. But we're seeing in North America, and I would argue in Europe too, some normalization of travel levels. So we're we're seeing that the business um, started to recover earlier um, than other parts of the world. So in uh, at the end of 21 and clearly into 22, we saw some pretty steady recovery. And we're just starting to kind of lapse that time period um, where we're seeing um, mid to upper single digit growth still in travel and. North America. Um, Europe's actually closer to 20% um, wow. in continuing form. And Asia is actually really catching up. Up 40% is our expectation for the fourth quarter. And it's striking to see what's going on with your profit margin expansion. So I have to imagine a little mm. bit of that is, you know, higher price, still able to pass it along. Consumer still really wants to be in this space right now. Is that kind of the idea? It's two things. One, it's, it's pricing, obviously, and, and um, our ability to manage promotion, like a lot of industries, people are managing promotion. Um, the other piece that's transformative for us is during the pandemic, we, we were very active in adjusting our cost structure. If you can imagine, the business was heavily impacted, and we, we carefully went through the business and adjusted our fixed cost. And so you're seeing a mix of amazing margin expansion, particularly with brands Toomey and Samsonite moving at a faster clip than American Tourister, and our cost structure fundamentally different. So we're really delivering what I would say record performance on gross margin and our, our EBITDA margins and our net income are just incredible, strongest we've ever had. Do you think that there's going to be a catch? So we're going through this with the physical side now where uh, there was real big splurge during the pandemic, then a normalization. Are you just later yeah. in that cycle where there's been a big splurge on travel, but then we're going to see some normalization and kind of be talking about the flip side of the coin a year or two from now? I think... Um, Fundamentally, I was watching your piece before on consumers and where they're um, deploying their dollars. I think travel is one of these um, trends that I think will continue to be very strong. I think when you look at where consumers are spending, they're spending on 
um, and, uh, on activities, um, experiences, and travel particularly. I was just looking at the forward outlook for Thanksgiving travel. It'll be record travel. And our business generally correlates perfectly with travel. Um, and we're quite excited for what we'll see at the end of this year in Q4. We're waiting to see holiday like everybody, what holiday is going to do. But I think um, the travel trends, I think, will continue to be strong. Our business is perfectly diversified across the globe. And so we can really see this amazing movement in Asia. Um, I'm sure you'll ask about China, so I'll just jump to China. China is up 13% for us wow. and slowly recovering on international travel out of China. So I think and into China, um, that's going to fuel a good story for us next year as well. All right, Kyle, thanks for joining us today. We hope to check back in soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Kelly. Kyle Gendro, CEO of Samsonite. Coming up, is it curtains for capitalism as we know it? A new survey finds that a majority of Americans don't think the current structure is working for workers. What needs to change and what companies can do about it next? Speaking of changes, Ferrari announcing it's launching an optional share ownership plan for employees via a one-off grant. It's also planning to hire 250 more workers in the first six months of 2024. Ferrari, ticker race, one of the best spinoffs in recent years, uh, seeing shares rise 1% today and nearly 60% now so far this year. We're back after this. Welcome back from Hollywood to healthcare. 2023 has been the year of the strike, and that matches up with the results of a new Just Capital survey, with a large majority of respondents saying they believe workers should be top of mind for corporations right now. Pippa Stevens is here to dig into those details. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, Americans believe that progress in companies becoming more just, that's factors like worker equality, environmental impact, and diversity efforts, has stalled. And labor is a key part of that, according to Just Capital's annual Americans' View on Business survey. In a year when we've seen strikes for higher pay and pushes toward unionization, more than 80 percent of survey respondents said companies should hike wages to keep up with inflation, with 83 percent saying workers should be able to engage in collective bargaining. Both issues are largely bipartisan, with more than 70 percent of liberals, moderates and conservatives saying it's a company's responsibility to pay a living wage. All told, just 28 percent of respondents see workers as companies' top priority, down from 37 percent during the height of the pandemic. Now, Americans do believe that purpose and profit can go hand in hand, but more than half say companies are heading down the wrong path. Looking forward, respondents said there should be more focus on action rather than commitments and that companies should be more transparent, Kelly, in order to build trust. Back to you. All right, Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. Coming up as 30-year mortgage rates have jumped to over 7.5%, shares of Home Depot are down 12% in the past three months. What should we expect out of its earnings tomorrow? We'll discuss that and some more fallout from this move in mortgage rates after this break. Welcome back. Home Depot reports before the bell tomorrow with shares on pace for another losing year, down more than 8% since January as the home improvement market slows dramatically. And existing home sales in September just reached their lowest seasonally adjusted annualized rate in 13 years. Bank of America has a look at how that stalled turnover is impacting consumer spending on items like mattresses and furniture, ahead of some other key retail reports this week. Here to discuss is Liz Suzuki, Senior Hardlines Retail Analyst at Bank of America. Liz, good to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. I joked earlier, but we've, we've pulled off the double Suzuki today. So I just want to mention that. We're all very excited. <laughs> Listen, let me get right into it. And I'm going to start with mattresses and kind of save the Home Depot stuff for, for just a moment. 
But I was thinking back, you know, Purple was once a $50 stock. It's, you know, a 50 cent stock today. Casper had a bad IPO. It went private at a lower valuation. Um, there have been, ma- there's already been major fallout from, and that was even before the uh, housing slowed dramatically. So where else should we be looking for shoes to drop across the home retail space? Sure. You know, I think what's been interesting about the analysis that you all have presented today, and you've been talking about the health of the U.S. consumer, and, you know, it it does still seem to be pretty much intact, and especially the U.S. homeowner is something that we've been focusing in on. And so these categories that are more tied to housing turnover and more sensitive to, you know, the number of moves that we see in existing home sales, I think that that's something that we need to be a little bit more cautious about, especially in these big ticket items like mattresses and uh, furniture and also uh, flooring. These are, you know, three big ticket categories that our analysis showed people who are moving spend significantly more than uh, than people who aren't. So mattresses, as you mentioned, um, people spend six times as much as non-movers uh, when they're changing zip codes. You know, makes sense. You're, you know, you bought, you bought a house. Now you're going to fill it. You probably have an extra room or two. And so you need an extra mattress, right? So spending there is a, is a bit more sensitive to housing turnover. Um, same with furniture. It's about four times as much uh, spending by movers versus non-movers uh, and, and high-end furniture even more sensitive there. So I think there are specific categories where we're still a little bit more cautious and, and really those boil down to those higher ticket items. And am I correct in seeing you know, a company like Floor & Decor, which you would imagine would be right at the center of this storm, is still up about 10% year to date? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Floor and Decor already reported their third quarter results. You know, they saw same store sales down 9%, which is, you know, more than really what they've ever seen before in terms of downside. So I think that when we look at the broader home improvement retailers that have a wider variety of product and are not so niche and are not as focused on uh, specific, you know, uh, housing turnover related categories, like, you know, they still have paints, they have, you know, broader maintenance products. We don't expect quite as severe a, d- a decline year over year for for, uh, for Home Depot and for Lowe's for that reason. But I do see Best Buy, Whirlpool. Obviously, we know Whirlpool struggles have been well documented. These are some of the names that you have an underperform on, even big lots and errands. Let me then kind of get to the grand conclusion here, which is what does this mean for Home Depot? You know, the shares are down 8% right now. They are in the middle of some of these hard hit categories, but maybe there's other areas they can lean on now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so when we looked at the home improvement category, uh, you know, we looked at building products and we looked at housing-related services. So these are, you know, things that you would pay a professional to do for your home, a general contractor, a plumber, an electrician. Anytime someone's using their Bank of America credit card to pay those contractors and and specialists, that's going into that uh, professional housing-related services category. And so what we saw there was actually less sensitivity to housing turnover. We saw that movers spent about one and a half times more than uh, than non-movers, and it's not quite as severe is like that six times for mattresses, right? So it was, uh, so a little, it's still a headwind and we actually still think that it's going to be a headwind through most of 2024, but where we could see relief and where the where our Bank of America economists are forecasting some of that relief coming is both from new housing construction, which is still expected to increase, and also from, uh, from the Fed cutting rates probably in the second half of next year. So that will help spur some housing turnover and get a little bit more movement going there and that should probably spur this stocks as well. Fascinating. That gets you an outperform on Home Depot, also Lowe's, even floor and decor, as mentioned. Liz, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Liz Suzuki with B of A. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.